All right, Erev Tov, good evening. B'zalat Hashem, we are continuing tonight in our Shi'ur on Agadatam. When preparing Shi'urim, you know, oftentimes it'll happen to me that people will say, Rabbi, what's the Shi'ur going to be on Shabbat? And I tell them, I don't know yet. They say, but your Shi'ur is in a few hours. I say, I still don't know yet. How do you not know yet? The answer is quite simple. Uh, I don't know yet because I didn't find the right piece of Torah that made me feel like it was worth teaching it. Sometimes I plan to give certain Jewim and then it just doesn't happen. HaKadosh Baruch put something else in my path and I feel like that's what needs to be spoken about right now. And tonight is one of those nights. Let me just grab one more paper than I forgot. As I was preparing the shiul this week, and we were planning to enter the Talmud itself, already begin the Mishnah, the first Mishnah, I came across this extra piece, which is clearly not extra, by a famous Chacham by the name of Harav Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg. We have discussed Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg in the past. Uh, does anyone remember anything about Rabbi Chayaka Weinberg, who he was, where he was from, anything about him? Not all at once, Chavah. I remember what we studied from Rabbi Chayaka Weinberg. Was he one of your Shiva? Not mine. There was a Weinberg that was one. Not that was a Roshiva where I studied, but not my Roshiva either way. You you once um, mentioned him um, in Europe. I, I'm not sure, but like uh, women singing. Um, Very good. At the table. Very good. Uh, if it's if it's like songs of uh, you know praise of Hashem, if it's uh, in. You know, among people, like not a woman by, by herself. Um, I, forgot the, I forgot the name of the book he wrote. Sridei Esh was one of the books that he Sridei wrote. Esh, Very right. good. And that's ex- Esh. that's exactly the Teshuvah that uh, we were referring to. Once upon a time, okay, we discussed we discussed the Teshuvah of his regarding whether or not uh, women are able to sing in front of men, called Bishayrva, uh, singing in groups of people versus individual people singing in front of each other. Uh, and the famous Teshuvah on this topic was written by none other than Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg. Uh, there perhaps is a longer instance in which we study the writings of Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg. If you are interested, you can go to our YouTube channel and check out the writings of Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg on tolerance. We did maybe a six-part series on his letters on tolerance. And Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg arguing that tolerance is not a Jewish value. Uh, and we, we discussed that at length. What does he mean that tolerance is not a Jewish value? And it doesn't sound like what you may think it sounds, but the short of it was that Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg believed that at the root of tolerance is apathy. I can tolerate you because I don't care what you think. I tolerate you because I don't respect that you have an opinion that I need to consider. It, tolerance is the opposite of the way we're supposed to engage with ideas. And Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg felt that it was proper and was correct for us to, to not tolerate things, but to deal with things, to talk about things, to discuss things. And it's a very powerful piece, I felt, at least enough to dedicate many pieces of a shiur on it uh, back in the day. Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg is one of the Geonai Ashkenaz, who I, I feel very connected to. His teachings have a lot of significance and a lot of relevance. And I believe, interestingly enough, that a lot of his approach to Judaism though it's very far away from that of our Chamim, has also maliciously been covered up and buried and hidden from the general public. And, you know, if it was my fight to fight, I would already make a list of Chachmei Ashkenaz, whose Torah needs to be brought out to the light and has to be taught and has to be mentioned. Uh, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg is one of those Chachamim whose Torah definitely needs to be studied and understood. 
and, and know more about. There is a fascinating work in English that you can get your hands on. It's widely available. And it talks a lot about the life of Rabbi Chir Yaakov Weinberg. It's a book by an author who I've recommended before, Rabbi Mark Shapiro. And this book is called Between the Yeshiva World and Modern Orthodoxy. The Life and Works of Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg of 1884-1966. It doesn't actually give a, more of a description of the book aside from that, but I think that Rabbi Shapiro makes a compelling, paints a compelling portrait of Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg and, and shows him to be a character that is unusual. It's a, it's a unique type of giant. It's a personality that dealt with things and bridged divides that other people had never attempted to do before, at least not successfully. And yes, for that reason, there were definitely people who were, were not fond of him and felt that his approach to Torah or to Judaism was dangerous or whatever else they might say. But normally that's where you find the good Torah. You have to look for the people that other people are not so fond of. And that's where you're going to find the gold of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Torah. If I could share with you a little bit about Rabbi Chia Yaakov Weinberg, I know that tonight... I'm not pressed for time, but I have to end on time uh, because we have Slichot right after the Shi'ul today. But a little bit about Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg I sent out already to our Google Classroom, in, uh, both from Wikipedia and from uh, other websites. A famous student of Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg was a, American, a rabbi in America. He was not an American rabbi, but a rabbi in America who was known as Rabbi Eliezer Berkovitz. Has anyone ever heard of him before? I know there's at least one person in this classroom who's read his book before. Not that one. Rabbi Eliezer Berkovitz wrote a book uh, called Not in the Heavens, something like that. He was a, a famous student of Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg, was a very involved in Jewish theology here. I have not read enough of his work to tell you if I'm comfortable recommending uh, his writings or not, but it was a tremendous Tamil Chacham, nonetheless. And he wrote once about Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg, his rabbi, the following words. Great Derush is always a personal confession. The great Darshan always interprets his own life. Rabbi Weinberg's thought as a darshan flowed from the depth of his personal experience. And even though Rabbi Berkovitz intends that to refer to all darshanim, there is something unique about the Torah of Rabbi, Rabbi Weinberg, which shows and sheds so much light on his personal life and struggles in his life. He was born in 1884 in Poland. He went to travel to the famous Slabodka Yeshiva. If you're familiar with the Yeshiva, Slabodka was one of the famous Yeshivot of the time. He studied uh, with some of the greater minds that came out to Ashkenaz afterwards in the Yeshiva. He studied by the famous altar of Slabodka, Rav Natan Finkel. He got involved at that point in his life with the Musar movement, which was its own controversy at its time. He went to study with Amir and then later uh, moved on to other yeshivot. Like other people in Ashkenazi yeshivot at the time, there was a big, uh, I wouldn't call it a yetzer haram, but a big yetzer, an inclination to go and discover the world and engage with modern thought and languages and cultures. And that drew him away from yeshiva at a very young age. Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg was drawn to Russia, to Grodno, where he wanted to study Russian. The Chavetz Chaim himself, Rabbi Israel Meir Kohen Kagan, actually went himself to drag back Rav Weinberg into the world of Yeshivot, where he stayed. He became a rabbi in a very small town, but this perhaps is the first of Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg's famous struggles. Part of becoming the rabbi in the town involved a marriage that he did not want to get into, and that was a marriage to the previous rabbi's widow. And Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg had a terrible relationship with this woman. He did not want to marry her. It ultimately ended up in divorce. He didn't have any children. And at a certain point in time, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg finds himself in Germany getting medical care. Much of his life he suffered from tremendous maladies. And that caught him at the beginning of World War I. 
There, while he was in Germany, he became very close to many great intellectuals at the time. And later on found himself at the head of the Hildesheimer, of Israel Hildesheimer, his rabbinical school, which was in Germany. Now you have to understand that whereas we may sit here and look at Europe as one big homogenous Jewish community, it's really not the case. There is nothing more stark than the contrast between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, especially Germany. Germany was, uh, forget the peak of the reform movement, that was the headquarters. But you're talking about an orthodoxy that was very, very different than anything Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg had ever experienced. In fact, the letter that Rachel referred to before, the motivation of trying to discover whether or not women should be singing in public with men at the Shabbat table initially didn't start off as Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg thinking it was okay. In fact, he writes at the beginning of that letter in the Sridesh that he came to Germany and he noticed some reprehensible behavior at the homes of some great Tamnei Chamim, where their wives and daughters were singing Zimirot Shabbat along with them, something that was virtually unheard of in Eastern Europe. And he just couldn't imagine how these great rabbis would allow such a terrible thing to happen in their home. And that led him on a journey through the sources, to reread sources, and to set forth an argument that holy singing, done in a public fashion with other people, where voices are mingled together, may indeed be something permissible, and that's a famous opinion of his found in his book, Sridesh. This need to deal with Western Europe is something that not all of his Eastern European colleagues ever had to deal with. And this definitely set Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg on a different trajectory than many of his other colleagues we had known in the past. Weinberg has many teshuvot where he deals with Nazi persecution of Jewish people. Some terrible teshuvot he had to deal with. In Kristallnacht of 1938, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg felt totally depressed and lost. He flees Nazi Germany, in which he's forced to leave behind his tremendous library. That library was his life. By the way, I know of one other Chacham who had to leave his library behind, someone in our generation who passed away quite recently. And the pain until the end of his life of having to leave behind his books unable to be with his books in that time of struggle, is something that, that was devastating for him, and I'm sure for Rabbi Chiliak Weinberg. He was a Russian citizen, and because of that, the Germans didn't put him together with the other Jewish prisoners, but made him be in a prison camp for Russian prisoners, that actually, as evil as that was, was actually a tremendous blessing for him. Rabbi Chiliak Weinberg survived the Holocaust because he was not taken two concentration camps as a Russian citizen. And in fact, he even told a colleague of his, uh, Rabbi Professor Shmuel Atlas, who we've mentioned before in one of our shiurim, is a very controversial figure who was a rabbi in the Reform Rabbinic Seminary in the United States, but had studied in the great Ashkenazi Shivot before in the Holocaust. Uh, I just saw a story today of a certain, a certain rabbi who came to America, I'm talking many years ago, and he went to a yeshiva, and he saw in the yeshiva, that there was a copy of an uh, edition of, of commentaries, Rishonim, that was printed by this Rabbi Shmuel Atlas. And this rabbi took out a pen and he wrote inside the yeshiva's copy of the book. He said, this man was a, a komer, was a, a clergy member of an idol-worshipping cult of Jews, and it is forbidden to study any of his works that he prints. Like that he wrote inside of the book. Uh, nonetheless, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg didn't feel that way. I believe it was Rabbi Yosef Kapach who also mentioned Rabbi Shmuel Adas. And Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg corresponds with Rabbi Shmuel Adas quite often. And he tells him that he actually had very little knowledge of what was happening to the rest of European Jewry until after the Holocaust was over. Literally after the Shah, after the Holocaust, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg's life was destroyed. Here he was, alone without a yeshiva, without a life, without a library, without a family, without anything. He was alone. His world of Eastern Europe had disappeared, was decimated. The world of Western Europe was no more. He had nowhere to go. And he had a student who took him to Switzerland, brought him, let him live with him, took care of him until the day he died. And while he lived there in Switzerland, Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg wrote, I am totally alone here. And this is the way that he died. 
He died feeling broken and totally alone. The student who took in Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg was tragically killed a year after he moved there in a car accident. And tragedy after tragedy after tragedy befall Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg. And so much of his teaching is born from this place of dealing with the world in a way that many others don't have to deal with. There's a letter that I sent out to you in the Google Classroom. Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg writes the following letter in 1956. He says, I was happy to receive your letter and enjoyed seeing that you have not forgotten me despite the evil things that occurred in the interim. So this is a Talmud of his, a former Talmud who wrote him a letter asking a halakha question. Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg says, I'm so happy that you didn't forget about me. It was fulfilled regarding me. God afflicted me, but he did not give me over to death. Why should a living man complain? It is enough that he is alive. Regarding my personal library in the Bede Midrash and in my room, I was not able to save a single book. I mourn for the loss of my books, since I left the valley of destruction barren and lacking everything. Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg is in a place in his life where Aside from the fact that I'm alive, I have nothing. By the way, he wrote, unlike many people in his generation, who were inclined to, on one hand, praise the partisan efforts against the Germans, and on the other hand, speak cruelly towards those Jews who went like sheep to the slaughter. Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg called those people heroes of the pen. It's very easy. It's very easy for you who were not in that situation to criticize those who didn't rise up, who didn't fight. And he writes something fascinating. He says, the torture, the shattering of any hope that Jews felt at the hands of the Nazis is something that no one can understand who hasn't been there. He said, you know, we have famous prophets who gave up their life for Hashem. And he says, those prophets would have been able to give up their life for Hashem over and over again. But they would have never been able to undergo the torture that we underwent and not give up Hashem. There's something different. The cruelty of the Nazis was something that only heroes of the pen can critique and criticize those who suffered by them. Ultimately, I think that Rabbi Shapiro does a tremendous job at piecing together all the pieces of the puzzle of this giant of a person who is Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg and whose writings are full of inspiration and power. I'm looking forward to doing one of them tonight with you. I send out a PDF that's attached to the Zoom invitation in the Google Classroom, as well as posted separately in the classwork section of the Google Classroom. Did everybody get it? Is there somebody who needs help finding it? Yeah? You guys know what I'm talking about? Good, Baruch Hashem. You should have a uh, cover page that looks like this. It's called Introductions by Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg. This book is Lifrakim. It's the second volume of the collected writings of Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg. I just recently completed my set of all the writings that I could possibly get my hands on of Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg. Though this book I've had for a number of years already. And on page three of your PDF, you should have a file titled, uh, you should have a, see a page that says, Shmatita Vagadita. Halachic text of the Talmud and Agadic text of the Talmud. Hahalacha Vagada. The Halacha and the Agada. Hazramim Hagdolim Bayadu. The two great streams in Judaism. In a style that is unique to Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg, normally before he writes anything, there's a passage of Talmud or somewhere else that he quotes first, and that leads him, that's what inspires him to write the essay following. The passage of Talmud 
that Rabbi Chiyah Yaakov Weinberg is going to take apart for us is a passage in the Talmud in Masechet Bavakama on page 60. If you want to look this up on your own in English, you're welcome to go to Sepharia. Click on Talmud, click on Bavakama, find page 60b and you'll find the story right there in the Talmud itself. However, for those of you who have your cameras off and you're feeling comfortable to put your cameras on, I would love to see your faces. B'zalat Hashem. Yativ Rav Ame v'Rav Ase Kamed Rabitchag Nafcha. Rav Ame and Rav Ase were sitting, thank you very much, were sitting in front of Rabitchag Nafcha. Mar Amar Le. Mar told them, Lema Mar Shema Please, tell us a teaching of halakha. Umar amarle, but some say more. Umar amarle, and the other one told him, Lema mar agadata. You please say agadata. Don't teach us halakha, teach us agada. We don't want to hear legal text, we want to hear uh, words of agada. Patach lememar agadata, veloshavikma. He began to teach agadata, and the other rabbi didn't let him teach agadata. So he's like, fine, I'll speak halakha. And when he began to speak halakha, the rabbi who wanted Agadah did not let him speak. So here he's trying to, they're asking him, teach us Torah. But they're being very selective on which type of Torah they want to hear. And not only are they being selective, the group that doesn't want to hear his Torah is shutting him down and stopping him from speaking. By the way, this censorship of teachers of Torah is not a new thing. You should know it's a very old idea that exists even in the rabbinic community. Among lahim, so he tells them, I wish to share with you a parable. What does it feel like right now? What, what is our situation similar to? There's a man who has two wives. Men don't have any ideas. But in the times of yesterday, there were times where men had two wives. You know, in Yemen, many people had uh, two wives. So I once asked my grandfather why he only married my grandmother. Why don't I have two grandmothers? And he told me, he said, I can barely handle one. He also wants me to have two. Uh, this, uh, it, it's a uh, life with, with marrying two people is never a good thing. Even though it existed in the writings of our Chachamim and the writings of the Torah, but you never find positive situations in which a man is married to two women. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for a second wife is, anyone know? Very good. A tzara. What is a tzara? A tzara is a suffering. It's not a good thing. You never find a story in the, in the Tanakh where someone is married to two people and it works out wonderful for them. So he had two wives. One was an older wife and one was a younger wife. Yalda meaning like she was very young. They can call her a young girl. Yalda melaketed lo levanot. The young wife didn't like so much that he was getting old and he was having white hairs grow. So she would pull out his white hairs. Zekena melaketed lo shcholot. The older wife, she would take out his black hairs. Why? She didn't like that he had black hair and she was already turning white. And this next phrase is a very common sentence that's used in Israel. In, in modern Hebrew, they use this phrase a lot, but they have no idea where the source of this phrase is. The source of this phrase is Masechet Bavakama, Daf Samech. Now he's bald in both directions. So if you ever see a man who's bald, just know that his two wives are picking out his hairs in the middle of the night, and that's why he doesn't have... <laughs> that's why he doesn't have hair in his head. Amarlehen, he tells them, meaning, what, what's the mashal here? The mashal is, this one doesn't want the white hair. This one doesn't have the black hair. So what's the final product? Is he doesn't have any hair. Normally when people are being too selective about something, you end up losing everything. You know, sometimes people have to make choices, and they're taking too long to make a choice, they're thinking, they're thinking, they're thinking, and then they finally can't make any choice because all the choices are off the table. I knew a person like that, was once looking for a job. And look for a job, and he got many job offers. 
And they started thinking, what job, between this job and that job, a fly for this interview, I'll go check out that place, and the house is over here, but the weather over there, and da 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 By the time he was over, he had no jobs. And then he had to settle for something that he didn't want to work in. In life, if you want to be picky, you might end up picking all your hairs out and remaining with nothing. Amar lehen, he told them, I will teach you something that's shaveh deshnechem, that both of you will want to hear, meaning it is made up of both halacha and agada. When a fire will burst forth and it will take, uh, catch on to thorns, it's a pasuk in the book of Shemot. What does it mean, tetze? Tetze doesn't mean that someone lit the fire. It means like a spontaneous combustion. It burnt on its own. Shalem yeshalem hamavir tebera. The one who lit the fire has to pay the damages for the fire. What does that mean? The beginning of the pasuk says that the fire happened on its own. And the end of the pasuk says that whoever started the fire has to pay the damage. Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Alai l'shalem atabera shehivarti. I must pay you back for the fire that I set. Ani hitzeti esh b'tzion. I lit a fire in Tzion, in Yerushalayim. Shnemar like it says, Vayetzet esh b'tzion v'tochal yisodoteha. Vayetzet, vayetzet. Then HaKadosh Baruch Hu lit a fire in Tzion and it devoured all of the foundations. And I will ultimately be the one to rebuild the Bed Mikdash with fire. Like it says in Zechariah, Where do we say this Pesukim? Do you remember which Tevilah we say this Pesukim? Very good. In the Milcha of when we say Nachem, the prayer of Nachem, inside of Nachem, we say, Hashem, you were the one who burned down Yerushalayim with fire, and you'll be the one to rebuild the walls of Yerushalayim with fire. This comes from here, from this Gemara. Meaning, this story had both a halacha in it, and an Agadah inside of it. When Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg sees this story, he sees this as the perfect point of tension, where there are two Chachamim, who are asking a third Chacham to teach him. But they are not willing to accept the Torah that that Chacham is teaching them. Because one of them is inclined towards Agadah, and the other one is inclined towards Halakha. And this is a clash between Halakha and Agadah that must be reconciled. So, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg writes the following words. Kol ayin bochenet hamid bonenet mehalach hitpatchut chayenu aruchanim b'meshach alpayim shnot kiyuma shel umazo. Any discerning eye, which has the ability to see our spiritual Unfo- the spiritual unfolding of Jewish history over the last thousands of years. We'll see the two great wellsprings of water that burst forth from the Eden of the Jewish people of Israel. These two different forces that come out of the Jewish people. Both the legal parts of the Talmud and Agadah, the non-legal parts of the Talmud. Like a, a powerful and mighty force of water that goes up high in the riverbanks. Halacha is consistent, it's powerful, it's strong. And it's able to gather up and collect all the smaller particles of our Jewish people along the way. They all pour out into this beautiful river of Halakha, which is wide and it's deep. The ships of life the boats of life will be able to sail freely in the rivers of Halakha, which are both deep and wide and steady and safe. Gam Agada is also comparable to a river. But not like a wide, deep river that flows beautifully. 
אלא לנהר סוחף, יורד מנהר ולופת את דרכו בין סלעים וצוקים. בשעון ורעש יבוא וקצף יז מסביבו, there'll be noise and thunderous sound and foam at its banks. משתפחים ונופלים אשדות המים בדרכי קולות מרהיבי עין ולוחי לב אלה שחוננו בחוש פיוטי להבין ולהרגיש את ההוד האיום שבהתגלות איתני הטבע. He said this river is so rapid and so raging and so powerful that only those with a unique poetic soul, a poetic heart will truly be able to understand the greatness of the nature that is found inside of this force of Agadah. Two rivers, two bodies of water, two flowing from the same source of life, but two completely different experiences. Remember the first thing I told you about Agadah when we studied together? I told you that Agadah is uncharted water. I had not seen this piece yet. Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg name. Halakha, it's very clear. When you see a teaching in the Torah, you know where to find it in the Mishnah, you know what to do with it in the Talmud, you know which Rishonim to look at, you know what to find in the Rambam, what to see in the Shulchan Aruch, what do you need to do until, until the very last detail you can find everything. It's clear. It may be a lot of work, it's very tedious, it's very deep, it's very long, but you'll get through it. It's a very clear path. The world of Agadah lacks any, any normalcy, any, any uh, style, any approach, any, any one consistent way to approach an Agadah. Even the Rambam and Rabbeinu Abraham, his son, when they tried to teach us how you look at Agadah, they couldn't give us one approach to Agadah. There was this type of Agadah is dealt with this way, this type of Agadah is dealt with that way, this type of Agadah is broken into four separate categories of Agadah. It's not for the faint of heart. It's a very dangerous journey. And it's not all that enjoyable for people who are really used to deep, long experiences that are very steady and very balanced. This is the description of the two great streams of Judaism. And both of them have their lovers and their haters. People are different. People are attracted to different things. People like learning different things. People can appreciate, there are certain people, they like order, they like balance. They like clarity. They like things to not come with surprises. They like things to always be done consistently the same way over and over and over again. The type of experience that doesn't uproot anything that was old and replace it with something new. It just constantly builds on and improves that which came before. It makes it more beautiful. These type of people who appreciate balance and being grounded. These people love halakha more than anything else in the world. Halakha to them becomes a key of life to building a building. We know exactly how to navigate it. We know every detail where we're going to end up. Not only is halakha what binds society together, but halakha is that which guarantees. It's the guarantor, the pleasant guarantor that the Jewish people will have historic continuity.
היא המקיימת והיא המבטיחה את שלמות הפרצוף הקדום של זרוע של אברהם. הלכה is what, what guarantees, what promises us to maintain the image of the Jewish people who are the children of Avraham Avinu. Those are the people who are attracted to halakha. I think in your life right now, if you stop and think of all the people you know who love halakha and put halakha on a pedestal, you'll find that these qualities of grounded, balanced, not up for excitement, not very spontaneous, not... Uh, where's my wife laughing at me right now? Uh, there's a... <laughs> hate roller coasters, don't like Ferris wheels, or whatever it's going to be. Halakha is... What are you looking for? What? What are you looking for? Me? Yeah, you said you're looking for something. No, I said, where are you oh. laughing at me? Oh, yeah. Those, <laughs> those who love halakha, they're, they're boring people. They like the standard life. That's just how they like it. There are some people who also have raging stormy souls. It's a soul that flies to the highest of places. These people, those are people who look for things that are out of the ordinary, for things that are exceptions to the rule. They don't like what is normal. They don't want the way that everybody else does things. They don't like to tread on the path of life that has already been charted and everyone else has done it. Being the guardians of ancient traditions, staying loyal to the way classic Judaism has done things. To be the preservers of that river of life that flows from Eden, it's not, it doesn't give them sipuk nafshi gamur. It doesn't satiate their soul. It doesn't give them the fulfillment, the spiritual fulfillment they're looking for. These are people who are yearning for kivushim, to conquer. They're looking for new revelations. They're not looking to do what everybody else does. You know, I always uh, told people that there's a difference, and forgive me if it's an overgeneralization, between the way Israelis tour the world and let's say um, us Americans tour the world. Israelis, I don't know if you've ever seen Israelis that come to a country and they're like, they come with their backpack and their water bottle and their sleeping bag and they will see parts of America that you didn't even know existed on the map. They're going to go hiking from one side to the other side, climbing mountains, jumping rivers. They come to a place and they're going to see a thousand things in one day. And you have, you know, the other tourists, they go on organized tours. They give them a schedule. It starts 8 o'clock in the morning. There's a continental breakfast in the lobby of the hotel. Please bring your camera. Uh, bring special water clothing for the afternoon river tour. You know, every, this is a kind of a life that you get a few things done. You see the nice uh, highlights of that place and you keep moving. There are people that it's not for them. That life that is so predictable doesn't do it for them. The religious experience, which is predictable, doesn't satiate their soul. They are never satisfied in the present. In that which is commonplace and normal. Their soul is constantly yearning for that which is new, that which has not been born yet. They yearn for the future. That which is currently unfolding and that which is still hidden. And therefore, they choose to walk and to wander in, in other thorny thickets. They wish to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu's greatness from in His world. And they yearn to uncover that hidden light that HaKadosh Baruch Hu only reveals to those that He chooses. This is a different camp. It's a different category. These are people whose souls fly. Their souls can't be grounded. Their souls can't be held back. They need a different type of Torah. By the way, for those who appreciate Hebrew, this type of Hebrew, for a rabbi who never officially lived in Israel, 
who didn't grow up speaking modern Hebrew should be something that inspires us all to master Hebrew to this, to this level. Agadah for them is the concentration of the light, the rays of light. They're the rays of light which shone through the clouds to light up this gray and dark, dim world. Agada light shows the light to all those who yearn and search. To the survivors of life. If I could translate it that way. That have a little bit of order and structure. Agada has in it appeal to those people who are sick and tired of the day-to-day grind, the routine, the way we always do things. Agada for them is not just an emotional experience. It is their foundation, their loyal foundation. It is a, it is a, a nurturing, fruitful, fertile environment which they rely on, which they need. It's not that cold, calculating human mind, which is meticulous with detail and logic and rationale. Dry, cold logic doesn't guarantee us that we will uncover that which is truly divine, which is real, which is the truth. Lehefech, the opposite. Davka ha'agada. These people know that it's the agada specifically. Zo This is intuitive understanding of the world. He he hanoset bechova et ha'yishut ha'mitit et ha'mitut ha'gvoha me'al gvoha ha'omedet me'al ha'mitut ha'sechel. This Agadah can bring us not just emotional satisfaction, but the greatest intellectual satisfaction that sits above intellect itself. These are the people that look at the normal, boring, regular people and say, you think you know everything, but you're missing, you're missing things that you can't even see yet. Because you think you've hit the top, but it's only a glass ceiling. The Ma'amar Dil'el, in the above, essay, the above teaching of our rabbis. Our rabbis tried to explain to us both of these tendencies that exist in the Jewish people. And the Talmud compares these two tendencies of Halakha and Agada to two types of wives. Yalda uskena, a young wife and an old wife. Hagada hitamid sira. Agadah is always young. She is full of, of youth. She is full of, of, of fresh childlessness. I believe it should say here without a samech, but rather a shin. It's a life which is full of burning fire, of passion, of noise. It gives birth to non-stop creativity. It has from the beauty of the turquoise skies. It has a scent, a beautiful smell of the blossoming fruit trees in the orchards. And of a field full of flowers. Halakha? Halakha is the old wife. Who's full of a different type of beauty. An ancient beauty. She's full of, of, of elderliness, if that could be a word. Her origins are in the days of yesterday. In the days of 
she was there at that time where our young nation was just standing at the foothills of Har Sinai, of that holy mountain. Many thousands of years have washed over her. And the same strength that she had then is the same strength that she has now. Her task is to upkeep the image, the shape of the Jewish people. She has been tasked with making sure that the descendants of Abraham Avinu still resemble their forefather Abraham and his image and likeliness should not be forgotten from his people. Omedati, she stands there. She stands there like a, a, a majestic stone, a powerful rock. And there, on her wrinkled forehead, is engraved the label of eternity. I'm, I'm falling out of my chair with the, the poetic descriptions here of Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg and Agadah and Halakha. We don't make Chachamim who speak like this anymore. We've just lost that creative spirit in Am Yisrael. So what do you do? Which wife is the right wife? The one who wants to go dancing, wants to be creative, wants to explore life, and the one who likes to sit at home and talk about the past and ensure that the future generations stand in order. Says Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg, this divide, this contradiction, is artificial. V'omnam kalut da'at me'en kamoha. Kalut da'at is worse than stupidity. Can someone give me a good translation for kalut da'at? It's stupid. Yeah, that's a Hebrew word for, I need an English word. Foolishness. Foolishness. Okay, let's go with foolishness. Let's say kalut dat is like a juvenile, a juvenile foolishness. It's like so, so petty of you. Kalut dat men kamoha, it's the greatest foolishness possible. Hi mitzad ba'ra. The lady who's picking out, the young wife who's picking out the white hairs from her husband's head, it's such a foolish thing to do. Listen to this beautiful idea here. And I wish that we could put this on billboards and all the people who invest all of their life savings, they say there's uh, uh, two ways to get rich in America. One of them is to find a miraculous pill to get people to lose weight. People invest money like crazy and anything that will help them lose weight without doing all the normal, simple things they could do to lose weight. And the second is to help people grow hair on their head. Those two businesses are thriving industries in this country. You cannot fool nature. Nature does not have in it room for trickery. You can't trick nature. You can't sneak up on nature and trick it. After you pick out all the white hairs, they'll just grow back again. It's possible, it is possible, to erase and to remove, to cover up all the signs, the symbols of aging on the face of a person who's aging. But the age itself, growing old itself, you can't cover up, you can't erase. It comes back stronger than before. It comes back exactly like it's always been. You cannot get rid of it. This is the decree of nature. Don't hate me, I'm really just reading and translating. That foolish woman who goes and buys makeup and all kinds of cosmetics 
to cover up her signs of aging, to cover up the wrinkles in her face and show some counterfeit youth. She's only able to fool the men who are just as superficial. You can't. You can't trick nature. You can't outdo nature. There are no tricks. There are no games when it comes to reality. Also that wife who's pulling out all the black hairs because she doesn't want to feel old. She's also foolish. You cannot force the wisdom of age onto someone against their will. You know how many parents tell their children, don't do it, why not? Because I did it and it wasn't good. Well, let me learn for myself. You can't force someone to learn from your mistakes. You can't put your age and your experience onto someone who's not able to accept those ideas from you yet. So long as a person is young, by the way, there are young people who are very old in age. There are some people who never grew up. Getting older has to happen, but growing up, and I don't say this in a positive way. You live in the West, and in the West there's a very strong stigma against being old. But in Torah and Mitzvot, being old is a zaken, zekana, chokhmah. The Gemara and Sanhedrin says, what is an old person? It's one who's wise. It's not like the way the world here looks. Why would you want to be young when you could be old? So long as a person is still young, Meaning, even if you try to cover up a person's youth, their youth will shine through. And even if you dye their hair white like snow, you're going to dye their hair, their beard to be white. There are those passionate lovers of Agada. Doesn't make a difference how you disguise youth. There are those who are always attracted to it. And when she comes dancing on by their window, they're just going to follow her like the Pied Piper. That's just the way the world works. And also halakha has its lovers, those who are obsessed with her, who see in halakha the secret of eternity. They see halakha is the prime example, the epitome of the eternity of Israel will not lie, will not fail us. Even those who have never truly merited to enter the Ben Midrash and see in the Ben Midrash the inner workings, the inner chambers of the world of Halakha. By the way, most of those who go to the Ben Midrash never saw that inside of Halakha either. Only those who went to the Ben Midrash determined to learn Halakha will be those who uncovered that beauty. But there are still those who never entered those chambers. They still see halakha as that elderly mother. She still is the mother that everyone flocks back to. There are those Jews that are not so intimately familiar with halakha. But ask them what they think about Judaism, the traditional kind of Judaism. The Judaism that's loyal to the sources. They'll say that Judaism has to exist. We need it to exist. Yeah, we may be dancing in the fields, but we need somewhere to come back to. We need a mother to come back to over the Chagim. We need a home to return to. And this is what Rabbi Yitzchak was trying to teach his great students. It's a grave mistake, it's an error to limit yourself to only one discipline of Torah. 
להיות נגרר רק לצד אחד, זה become partisan, and experience only one type of Torah. לצד ההלכה או לצד ההגדה גרידה. I'm a halacha person, I'm an agada person, I don't deal with those things. It's a mistake. It's a mistake to limit yourself to being exposed to both sides of Torah. שתיהן, both of them, ההלכה וההגדה, ברוח ישראל מקורן. Both of them flow forth from the spirit of Israel. וצדדים שונים למטבע אחד, there are two sides of the same coin. If בן ציון מלכי עוזיאל called הלכה and אגדה twin sisters, then רבי יחיאל יעקב ויינברג is telling you that there are two sides of the same coin. לתורת ישראל השלמה, together they create the complete wholesome תורת ישראל. ההלכה היא הגדר החזק והחומה הבצורה לחיי ישראל. The halakha is that strong fence, that protective barrier that defends the life of the Jewish people. Ha'uma, the nation, ha'mishpacha, the family, v'hayachid and individuals, sh'yisharu kayamim v'omdim lanetzach ul'dorot olam b'tzivyon ha'kadum shel reshit ha'uma. It keeps us alive the way we always have been since the beginning that we began our journey as a nation. V'ha'agada, and what is agada? Hi'yikod ha'tamid b'toch nishmato p'nima. She is that passionate flame that burns deep inside the heart of the Jewish person. Esh yokedet bilibot erim. It's a burning flame in the heart. Koach meir umchamem umalhiv. It's a power that is warm. It's, it's exciting. Shtehen, both of these, gam halacha vegam haagada, hen chemda gnuza shel ribbon haolamim. They are both the treasures of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. אשר בחר בעם ישראל, which chose us, the Jewish people. ונתן לנו את תורתו, and gave us his Torah. ואין לנו רשות להעדיף את זו על פני זו. And we have no permission to show favoritism to one of the disciplines of Torah over the other. ומה יפה הרמז שגילו לנו חז"ל בכתוב. And how beautiful was that hint that our rabbis hinted at in that פסוק. ואני אהיה לה חומת אש. I will be a... Barrier of fire. Chomat halacha habtsura. We will have a barrier, a strong, solid barrier of halacha. Misaviv laesh akodesh ba'agada. Surrounding the holy flames, which are agada. You need both, Rabotai. To have a wholesome understanding of Torah, you cannot back yourself up into a corner. You cannot stay only in the world in which you are comfortable. And I'm asking and I'm telling you. That together, beginning next week, we're going to open up the first page of Talmud. And as people in this community who primarily deal with the world of Halakha, we're going to try to put on a different hat, to think a little differently about a Gemara. We're going to try to read Mishnayot and Talmud which discuss details of Kiryat Shema and not get stuck on the Halakhot, but to uncover what is that fire, what is that life force. Where is that young spirit that is dancing and wishing for us to be creative? We can do that together, B'zal Hashem. For those of you who are here with us tonight and you come with us every night, please join us next week for this journey. And for those of you who don't always get a chance, you're not always able to come and learn Torah with us, I'm telling you, it's the month of Elul. You only have three more weeks to Rosh Hashanah. And it's time, it's time perhaps for you to say, hey, just for the next three weeks, I'm not going to do it after Sukkot, just for the next three weeks, I want to try to learn something I've never learned before. I want to expose myself both to the protective barrier of Am Yisrael of Halakha and to that creative fire, that spirit, that passion that lives inside of our people. Bezat Hashem, next week, we'll continue with the first page of Maseret Berachot. The homework for next week, because this Shiu and Agadah is going to require a tremendous amount of preparation, both on my end and on yours. All I've ever asked for people who come to my Shiurim, I'm not, I don't charge money to learn Torah, I don't ask you to do much aside from, put in the same energy that I put into the Shiurim. This piece of Talmud that we're going to study, we may get stuck on it for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know how this works. Because if you want to extract all the hidden messages of a piece, you have to know it by heart. The first Mishnah of Masechet Berachot, it's the first tractate of the Talmud. If you want to go through a regular Talmud, it's going to be... The first, the first section of the Talmud, right here, just the Mishnah. That's going to be, if you're using an En Yaakov, so you're also going to look for the first piece of Talmud in Masechet Berachot, where it says Mishnah, 
and you're going to want to do that Mishnah. If you don't own any of these books and you'd like to find out where to get them, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, but you're welcome to also use the free link on sefaria.org, which I'll post later tonight, Bezat Hashem, so you can begin already preparing for next week's Shi'u. I expect that those of you who come to next week's Shi'u will already have learned the Mishnah a few times, so you know it, you know what we're talking about, and we won't have to learn it on our own. We'll be able to jump right into why and how this Mishnah works, Bezat Hashem. Uh, at this point, I will take maybe a question or two, but we really have to...